Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, let me uh, begin by saying uh, thank you for coming. And, uh, you know, I've been thinking about uh, through the afternoon. My goodness, last night, uh, Mark and CJ were just incredible. Uh, This morning, I don't think I've ever heard anything more powerful on worship than what we heard from uh, Mark Driscoll. And uh, he changed his mind during the night and got up at five this morning and reworked the whole thing. And as I said to him, taking him back to the airport, that uh, if it was for no one but me, uh, I needed to be reminded of the idols of the heart that so easily deceive all of us. And then Bill Brown, just an incredible job of helping us understand worldview and the options that are out there and how important it is for us to love the Lord with our mind. And so as I think about my assignment to close things, I'm a bit intimidated because it's going to be very difficult to even approach the outstanding job uh, each of these men did. And yet, um, I think God's put something in my heart that I want to share. I'll not be long. I know that by now you're tired. I know that by now you know how beautiful it is outside. Uh, I mean, my goodness, we ought to just move outside and uh, do the last session out there. That would be pretty cool if we could do that. Yeah, I I could go for that if we get the sound system out there. But anyway, um, I want to raise a question and then try to provide an answer. It's a simple question. And I think the answer is simple as well. The question is this. How does the gospel come to life according to Jesus? How does the gospel come to life according to Jesus? I think the answer is a single word. Love. Love. Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 22, when confronted by the Pharisees, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus, when he was with his disciples on his last night, when he would be betrayed, he said this in John thirteen thirty four. a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then the beloved apostle John, who was the most intimate one with the Lord Jesus, gave us a gospel, three letters in the book of Revelation. He said this in John, first John, chapter four, verse seven, beloved. Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, beloved. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Jonathan Edwards lived from 1703 to 1758. I believe he is the greatest intellectual mind ever produced in America. Unfortunately, most people know Jonathan Edwards as the preacher of the uh, the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But Jonathan Edwards was a pastor. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was a man that God used mightily in the first great awakening. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was a president of Princeton College, now Princeton University. Great writer, prolific writer. In fact, uh, Dr. Andy Davis, pastor of First Baptist Church Durham, is teaching a class here this semester on Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book entitled Charity and Its Fruits. And in that book, he raises a very simple question and then provides the answer. And the question is this. What is it that makes the church like heaven? 
Now, that's a great question. It's a profound question. What is it that makes the church like heaven? And he said, there's a single answer, a single word, love. And if Jonathan Edwards is right, and I think he is, and if Jesus is right, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another, I don't think there's anything more crucial to the gospel coming to life than that we have an accurate understanding of what biblical love is all about. You say, well, how would I find that out? First Corinthians chapter 13. Take your Bible and turn there. Most of you know this text. If you are here and uh, you have uh, already married, it would be not unlikely that this particular text was read at your wedding ceremony. I had the honor of performing three of my son's weddings. We have four. The other one is not married yet, but the three who are married, I performed each of those ceremonies. And in each of those ceremonies, I read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, for you uh, hermeneutical uh, geniuses and hermeneutical wing nuts, I know that 1 Corinthians 13 is between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. I know that it's about uh, spiritual gifts in the church, and it's trying to help us understand how we exercise our gifts in a way that builds up the church, doesn't tear the church down. And in particular, it's really interested in regulating uh, the gift of tongues and also showing how the gift of prophecy should be utilized as well. And yet I am convinced what works well in the church will also work well in your marriage. It will work well in your family. It will work well where you go to school. It will work well where you eat and where you shop and whatever you do, love will help you do what you do to the glory of God. And therefore, as he addresses it in the context of the church, I have no doubt that Paul did not intend for it to just stay there and be restricted there. No, he intended for 1 Corinthians 13 to be lived out daily in all of our lives. Now, brothers and sisters, we think about love, we talk about love, we sing about love. When I was uh, young, there was a Motown singer by the name of Dionne Warwick. And she had a song entitled, What the World Needs Now is Love. I don't think she got it from the Bible, but she is correct. What the world desperately needs to see is love, authentic, real, genuine, biblical, Christ-like love. And I praise God that he did not leave it to our imagination as to what this thing is, but he inspired the Apostle Paul to give us an entire chapter in our Bible, 13 verses that make it very, very clear what love is according to God. And so I am nothing but a Bible teacher. That's really all I know how to do. And so if you have an open Bible, a pen and a piece of paper, I'm just going to walk you through these 13 verses and make some observations about how it is that love is that which brings the gospel to life. Let me show you, first of all, in the first three verses that Paul simply says this. Love is essential. Love is essential. Let me read the three verses. Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could even remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Paul begins by just simply saying, love's essential. Love is essential for a healthy church. Love is essential for a healthy marriage and family. Love is essential if we're going to truly, genuinely bring the gospel to life in the world in which we live. Now, he specifies why it is. That love is essential. He says, first of all, in verse 1, without love, doesn't matter what you say. Look at it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. I think Paul is using a hyperbole here. And he's simply saying this. I can speak from earth or I can speak from heaven. I can speak like a man or I can speak like an angel. I mean, I can be incredibly gifted incredibly persuasive, 
Uh, I have a silver tongue, if anyone does. I mean, I have some incredible gifts when it comes to the way I talk and the arguments I present. But I want to tell you something, Paul. Paul says, if you do that, but love does not accompany what you say, you are just a lot of noise. Sounding brass. Clanging cymbal. By the way, those were very popular instruments of worship in the pagan temples that dotted the city of Corinth. In other words, Paul would say to us this afternoon, you know what? If love does not accompany what you say, you really are no different than a pagan. In fact, you may be a pagan. Because it's love that brings authenticity and integrity to what you say. I've been married now for 30 years. Uh, my wife Charlotte and I married when I was 21 and she was 19. And I have often said if I had it to do all over again, I would only change one thing. I would have married her a year earlier. I would have married her when I was 20 and she was 18. And uh, by the way, I am in complete agreement with uh, Brother Mark. Uh, I am a big fan of marrying and marrying early. Uh, it just gives you guys a chance to get in trouble and you gals get a chance to get in trouble. And again, I recognize most of the problem uh, is with gutless, cowardice males who won't step up to the plate and play the man. So, boys, once more, uh, get rid of the T-shirts and the boxer shorts and the video games and step up to the plate and be a man. And get out there and go for it. I'm telling you, you're, you're missing a lot of fun. I just tell you that, and I'll leave it there. You can figure it out. You're not dumb. But my point, 30 years married to the same woman. And I want to tell you something. When she speaks into my life, I listen. I don't always like it. I don't always appreciate it, but I listen. Why? Because I know that outside of Jesus, no one loves me more than does Charlotte. I mean, she has seen me at my worst, and she still loves me. She has seen me when I didn't act like Jesus at all, and she still loves me. And I know that no one this side of heaven wants me to excel for the glory of God more than does she. And so when she speaks, I listen, even if it's not uh, pleasant, even if it's not comfortable, I listen. Why? Because I know she loves me. And I want to tell you something. You can be absolutely incredible with your ability to articulate arguments and state your case and say what you say. But if people don't believe that you love them, after a while, they will just blow you off and pay you no mind. And that's why, unfortunately, many lost people don't pay a whole lot of attention to what we say. Because they're not really convinced that we love them. Several years ago, I was uh, living in Dallas, and a friend of mine and I were, uh, we'd do a weekly radio show. This is just kind of a dialogical Bible study. We'd go through books of the Bible, just talking back and forth. And one time, we were in uh, Genesis, and we were dealing with issues related to creation. As soon as we got through with the show that day, the telephone rang where we were, and I, and I, I answered it. And there was a man on the other end who said, I want you to know that I was driving through Dallas, and I was channel surfing, and I heard your show. And I had to stop, and I'm at a payphone, and I just want you to know that I think that the two of you are absolute morons and idiots for believing that creation crap in Genesis 1 and 2. I said, well, I at least appreciate you taking the time to express your perspective. And he said, well, I do. I just think that you're an idiot. And I said, okay, you, you, you communicated that pretty well. And he said, um, he said the problem is... You're a man of faith, and I'm a man of science. I have something to stand on, and you don't. I said, really, is that, is that what you think? He said, that's exactly what I think. I said, okay, I, could, could I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, uh, as you would expect, I believe that uh, God is eternal. He said, yes, I'm sure that's what you believe. And I said, I would assume then that you as a secularist, as an atheist, uh, as an evolutionist, you believe that matter is eternal. And he said, um, quiet for a moment, yeah, yeah, that's what I believe. I believe that matter is eternal. I said, that's fine. Would you provide for me some proof? It got real quiet. And he said, uh, what did you say? I said, I just would like some proof. How do you prove 
that matter is eternal. And he said, well, uh, I can't. I said, oh, now I understand. I'm a man of faith and you are a man of faith. By faith, I believe God's always been around. By faith, you believe matter has always been around. Neither one of us can prove our proposition, so we both begin with faith. Now the question is, which is the more persuasive faith system? And I immediately jumped into the gospel, and I began to talk about Jesus. Now, when I got through, I wish I could tell you we had this wonderful conversion experience by telephone. No, that did not happen. But here is what happened at the end of the conversation. This man said to me, you know... You have given me some things to think about. And I'm going to. Because you are the first Christian I've ever talked to. Who did not get angry and scream and yell at me. Because I did not believe what they believe. And I immediately said to him, well, I want to apologize to you. Because Christians who scream and yell at you because you're an atheist are not acting very much like Jesus. Folks, whether they believe like we believe or not, we love them. Whether they ever come to Jesus or not, we love them. In fact, you know, there's sometimes I wish I could know in advance that someone to a heart, to my heartbrokenness, I wish I knew in advance they were not going to become a Christian so that I could then gauge, but I still love them unconditionally as Jesus loves them unconditionally. And the Bible says without love, it doesn't matter what you say. But secondly, the Bible says without love, it doesn't even matter what you know. Now, this is where a lot of us get in trouble, especially those of us, I exclude myself, who are intellectual heavyweights. Verse 2, though I have the gift of prophecy, oh, I can look into the future and see what God's going to do in advance. And though I understand all mysteries, I have incredible insight into the deep things of God. In fact, I have all knowledge. And though I have a faith that is so awesome, I can remove mountains. Paul says, if I don't have love, as God reckons things, I am nothing. You see, without love, it doesn't matter what you know. You can be brilliant. You can be valedictorian. You can graduate with a 4.0. You can knock the SAT, the ACT, the GRE. You can do it all. You can have a Ph.D. like all these men and women that I work with. I mean, they are unbelievably uh, educated The Bible says if uh, love does not accompany your knowledge as God reckons things, you count for zero. And there's nothing less than zero in the way God reckons things. You see, Paul's already told us in chapter 8, verse 1, didn't he, that knowledge what? Puffs up. Knowledge makes you arrogant. Knowledge makes you proud. Knowledge makes you a know-it-all. You think you're something. The Bible says you're actually nothing. But you really think you're cool. You really think you're not something. You think you are God's gift to everyone because of what you know. Now, don't misunderstand. God is not against knowledge. God is never honored by your stupidity. God is never honored by you being ignorant. That's why, again, Jesus says you're to love the Lord your God with your mind, which I, not my, because they're my book, but I affirm what Dr. Ashford said a moment ago. You need to read good stuff. Now, the stuff that some of you read is only sucking the gray matter out of your ears. That's all it's doing. And you're, you're getting more and more unintelligent with each passing day because of the garbage and the infantile stuff that you read. Again, most Christians don't act like Jesus because most Christians don't think like Jesus and they don't think like Jesus because they haven't studied Jesus. And let me tell you something. You hear me and hear me well. Having, and I'm for this, having your quiet time in the morning is not enough to help you rightly love God with your mind. If you're serious about the Lord, you will buy Christian biography and classics. You'll buy a Bible dictionary. You'll buy commentaries. You'll buy a theology. You'll buy good, solid Christian stuff that will stretch your mind. You will force yourself to go back and read Augustine and read Calvin and read Luther and read Edwards. Yes, it will stretch you, but it will also enable you to better love God with your mind. So God is not a fan of ignorance, but... God knows that ignorance is better than having a full mind that doesn't love God. You see, when you have that kind of mind that isn't controlled by love, you get sucked into pride, and it is pride that took the devil down. The devil, by the way, 
He's a pretty sharp dude. Uh, he would classify as an intellectual heavyweight. What did his knowledge do but take him down? And the Bible says without love, doesn't matter what you know, but it even gets even worse than that. Without love, it doesn't even matter what you do. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, I, I'm a great philanthropist. And though I give my body to be burned, that is, I even give my life in martyrdom, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. You give it all away because you want people to think what a great guy you are. You even give your life in martyrdom because you want people to think how committed and devoted you were. And yet the Bible says, if love for God and love for others does not accompany what you do, God says you've got your reward and you've got it right now. And it counts for nothing. Don Carson, in his excellent book entitled Showing the Spirit, puts it into the modern church context. And I like the way he says it, so listen very quickly. If Paul were addressing the modern church... Perhaps he would extrapolate further and say it like this. You Christians who prove your spirituality by the amount of theological information you can cram into your heads, I tell you that such knowledge by itself proves nothing. And you uh, who affirm the Spirit's presence in your meetings because there is a certain style of worship, whether formal and stately or exuberant and spontaneous, if your worship patterns are not expressions of love, you are spiritually bankrupt. And you who insist that speaking in tongues attest a second work of the Spirit, a baptism of the Spirit, I tell you that if love does not characterize your life, there is not evidence of even a first work of the Spirit. By the way, what did I say a moment ago in reading First John? If you don't love God, then you don't know God. In other words, you're lost. You're lost. If love is not a component and characteristic of your life, John says you're lost. You've never been regenerated. You've never been born again. No, as Carson concludes, in none of these instances does Paul deprecate spiritual gifts, but he refuses to recognize any positive assessment of any of them. Unless the gift is discharged, is exercised in love. That's why Paul says love is essential. Now, secondly, in verses 4 through 8, Paul says love is expressive. And here's what Paul does. Let me tell you what he does. I'm going to hit it in a very fast fashion. Paul gives us no less than 16 descriptive characteristics of love. Now, here's what's interesting about them. Number one, every single one of them is a verb. In other words, as we all learned in grammar school, verbs are action words, and so love is action. Love is not abstract. Love is not a fuzzy, warm feeling. Love is an action word that does stuff. Secondly, every verb in the Greek text is in the present tense, which means this is the pattern or the habit or the normal way you live your life. Are you like these 16 things perfectly? No, only Jesus is like that. But you are like this consistently. In other words, if I were to talk to your mate or I were to talk to your best friend, if I were to talk to those who know you best and I were to say, is she really like this? They would be able to say, you know, yeah. For the most part, day in and day out, she's exactly like verse 4 through the first part of verse 8. So... If it's love that lets the world know that we belong to Jesus, if it is love that makes the church like heaven, then what is it that love really looks like? Very quickly, look at it with me. Verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love suffers long. You may have a translation that says love is long-suffering. I like that one the best. You say, why? Because it helps me understand it. Love is long-suffering. And here's the deal. If God is going to make you long-suffering, He must bring people into your life who make you suffer long. You like that? That's right. If God is going to make you long-suffering, He must bring people into your life that make you suffer long. It's interesting, that word is never used in the Bible to talk about how you and I respond to circumstances. No, it's always a word that talks about how you and I respond to people. Mark and I have become good friends, and again, on the way back to the airport, we were talking about our family, and 
talking about his dad. And uh, as he shared, he came up in a very rough situation. In fact, he shared with me, and I don't think he would be offended, that uh, his dad literally beat the hell out of him uh, all of his teenage growing up years. He said, my dad worked me over, worked my brother and sisters over, would beat up on my mom because I was the oldest. I would try to intervene, get in the way, which means I usually took the brunt of it so that when I was able to leave home at about the age of 18, I hated my dad's guts. I could not stand him. But then I got saved. God began to really do a work in my life in Ephesians chapter 4, where the Bible teaches us that we're to forgive others even as God in Christ has already forgiven us. And all that simply means is this. Listen to me. You will never forgive anybody as much as God in Christ has already forgiven you. And Mark said, the Lord helped me love my dad. And he said, you know, and tears began to come down his face as we were driving back to the airport. He said, I can still remember the day that we were serving communion at our church. And my dad walked up to me, confessed that he had become a Christian, asked me to forgive him, and asked me to serve him communion. He said, "Uh, today, my dad is a good dad, incredible granddaddy. And if I were to tell my children what my dad once was like, they would not believe it because they've never, ever, ever seen him like that. And Mark went on to say, you know, God has really taught me about being long-suffering. Yeah, I, I suffered through some really tough things, but I see God was preparing me for some other things. Does that mean that the suffering is, is, is necessarily... Um, how do I want to say this? Can it be a bad thing? Yeah. It's not a good thing to be beat up by your dad. But we have a God that can take a bad thing and do a good thing. That's what's so cool. He can take a bad thing like that and do a good thing and turn you into a long-suffering kind of individual. But what's the next word? Kind. It's kind of the flip side of long-suffering, isn't it? And here's what I think. This is my judgment. I think you find out and I find out if we're kind when we are in a position of advantage. In other words, how do you treat people beneath you? How do you treat people who can do absolutely nothing to further your agenda? How do you treat people like that? You see, I believe you identify a truly devoted follower of Jesus, at least in part, not by the way they treat their superiors, but by the way, they treat those beneath them. That's when you find out whether or not you are really kind. But then he goes on and says this. Look, love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. And love is not puffed up. Love does not envy. Love doesn't have an inferiority complex. Love does not have an inferiority complex. Love does not say, if I had this, if I could do that, then I'd be fine. Do you realize that if you envy, if you want a position somebody has, if you want the stuff somebody has, you realize that at the very root of that is unbelief? It's the sin of unbelief. Because in essence, what you're saying is, God, you are keeping your best for me. God, you're holding out on me. You let him do this, you let her have that, and God, if I had that, then I'd be fine. No, you wouldn't, because envy has built into it the seed of its own destruction. Because when you get, you're not satisfied, you want more. And when you get that, you're not satisfied and you want more. And you get, and you want, and you get, and you want, and you're never, ever satisfied with what God has given you and where God has placed you. And so envy, in essence, has an inferiority complex. And the Bible says, love does not envy. But hear me now. Not only does love not have an inferiority complex, love does not have a superiority complex. Because he also says there in verse 4 that love does not parade itself and love is not puffed up. I like to say it this way. Love does not have the peacock syndrome. Strutting about. Letting everybody know who they are, what they have, where they've been. I mean, some people are so egocentric 
They almost have no ability at all to look outside of their own immediate circle with mirrors all around them, always looking at themselves, always talking about themselves, just filled up with themselves. And again, at the heart of that is pride. And I agree with those theologians who say pride is at the very heart of all sin. And, of course, pride in that regard is also related to idolatry. It all hangs together. So Paul says, love is long-suffering. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself about. It's not puffed up. And, verse 5, love does not behave rudely. Now, I'm going to stay here for a moment. Some of you have heard me do this before, but that's okay. It's worth being reminded of. Love has manners. Love treats people with love, kindness, grace, and respect, even if it's not returned. One of the areas that we as believers really mess up in this regard is the way we treat people when we go out and eat at a restaurant. Um, I travel a lot, just what I do. And there are times when I will bring a message somewhat along this line, and I'll decide just to kind of, you know, um, uh, go on a bombing raid on this one issue. And I always get the same. There's not yet been an exception to the response. So I think you'll at least find it of some interest. So you've had this response dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Uh, I start by telling them a story. When I was in Dallas with uh, Charlotte, when we first got married, we one Sunday were invited to go out and eat after church. Uh, Since we were very poor, like you all are, if anyone ever asked us to go out for dinner or for lunch, we had a standing answer, yes. We didn't pray about it. There was no need to pray about it. We didn't pray about it. We didn't consult with each other. We said yes. And if we happened to receive two at the same time, then we tried to negotiate for the dinner that night with the other couple. And that's how we would do it. And so we were invited to go out the one uh, Sunday afternoon to the Western Sizzlin, a steakhouse there on Northwest Highway in Dallas, Texas. And so as we were sitting down and getting ready, the waitress came over. And if you've been around me any time at all, you know I'm a very chatty kind of individual. And so this lady comes over and I say to her, uh, how are you doing? And she responds, it's Sunday, isn't it? Now, if I had been paying attention, I would have realized by the tone of her voice that she was not happy about it being Sunday. There was really going to be nothing profitable about this conversation. And I would have just let it go right there. But I was oblivious. So like men with their wives, when women use code language, you're not paying attention. You know, you you, you think the words are what really matter. The words don't mean squat. (laughs) Oh, no. No, no, no. Even you guys that are dating have figured this one out by now. It's not the words. It's the feeling behind the words that means everything. So when she says, it's Sunday, isn't it? That's not a good thing. But no, I wasn't paying attention. And so I said, oh, I understand. Now, you have to work on Sunday. But if you didn't, you'd go to church. And she said, if I didn't work on Sunday, church would be the last place I would go. Well, by now, I'm getting very uncomfortable. I'm I'm knee-deep into this. There's no way to extricate myself from this. And so... I, I, I'm, I just I, I said, well, why, why do you not want to go to church? And she said, because that's where Christians are. And she reached into her apron and she pulled out a gospel track. It was a four spiritual laws, if I remember correctly. And here's what she said. I'll never forget. She said, you see this thing right here? This won't feed my children. Furthermore, you Christian people are are loud And you're rude and you don't make your kids behave. And so in addition to being cheap, you make it real. It's the worst day of the week to work. She walked away. I'm devastated. I mean, I am. I'm just I'm only 21. And I'm just like, have we been screwing up that long? I mean, what have we been doing here? So she comes back. I take a deep breath after saying a quick prayer, and I said, uh, ma'am, can I say one more thing to you? And she said, yeah, go ahead. I've asked for it. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, um, I want to apologize. I want to apologize to you for all the times Christian people have been rude, um, demanding, and cheap. Because I want to tell you something. If Jesus were to ever come into your restaurant and sit down, I can promise you several things. Number one, he wouldn't be rude. 
uh, you'd remember him because he'd be so kind and so gracious. You, you would remember how nice he was. And I also know this. He would not be cheap. He'd be very, very generous. In fact, he would be lavishing in terms of what he would leave on the table after he departs. Now, I'm going to say what I'm going to say, not for this, just as a matter of testimony that I would challenge you to consider carefully. I've been married for 30-plus years. My wife would bear witness that in all of those years, not one time, not one time, not one time, not one time, have I ever tipped a waiter or a waitress less than 15%, not one time. Well... They don't do a good job. I ain't giving them nothing. Okay. All right. You want to go there? We'll go there. You know why you think that way? Because you're carnal. You're carnal. You don't think like Jesus. You're carnal. You're in the flesh. You're selfish. You're prideful. You're arrogant. You're carnal. Feel good about yourself? You ought not. <laughs> Last week... We were driving to Charlotte, and we stopped along the way to eat at Danny and Charlotte's favorite place in all the world to eat, the Waffle House. We are Waffle House fanatics. And so we go into the Waffle House, and I always get the all-star breakfast, which means you get your eggs over medium, you get your bacon, your wheat toast, the one healthy thing I do. You get your grits, and uh, you get your waffle. And I do drink the 2% milk. And so anyway, um, Charlotte gets some kind of hamburger thing, and we always do this. Our bill is always together somewhere around $16. That's what, I mean, that's pretty good. $16 for the two of us to eat in the Waffle House. We always give the waitress $40 every time. $40. Almost without exception, they will say, you gave us too much, you gave me too much money. And we will say, no, this is for you. We do this the other day, and the waitress just went nuts. I mean, I thought she was going to speak in tongues. I mean, she just went into, <laughs> I mean, she's just, she's dancing, and uh, she, she's just going nuts. Well, the two other waitresses walk over, and they say, what are you so happy about? She said, he gave me a $23 tip. The black girl that was there said, man, he's a nice fella. The white girl said, well, that's true in my day. And I said, well, why do you say that? And she said, and I quote, the best tip I've ever received in my entire life in the Waffle House is $5. So we got in the car, and my spiritual sidekick said, you know what? Let's be a blessing to those two ladies, too. And so even though they didn't wait on us, she went back in and gave each of them a $10 bill and said, we just want to do this in Jesus' name to you. Now, you say, well, I can't do that much. I understand. When I, when I was where you, you live, I didn't make a lot of money. I make a lot more money than I used to, okay? So I can be more generous, but you know what? The amount of money you have doesn't determine whether you're a generous person or not, whether you're a nice person, whether you're a kind person, whether you're a gracious person. And I'm just telling you this. Here's my point. After I get through saying that and sharing that story, I'll have Christian men and women come up to me every time. Never, never fails. No exception. No exception. No exception. They'll say to me, you know, well, Brother Danny, what you said tonight is unfortunately true. Christian people are rude. Christian people are demanding and Christian people are cheap. And brothers and sisters, I just need to be honest with you. It'd just be better for you to stay at home and not go out if you're going to be like that. Or, you know, please, I beg you in Jesus' name, don't leave a track if you're going to be a cheapskate. And at least from my perspective, since I'm a Baptist, tell them you're a Methodist. And that'll be, you know, this at least do that. No, I'm kidding. I don't, I don't, I don't mean that. I, I don't mean that. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Sort of. I'm sort of kidding. Episcopalian. Go ahead and do it. There you go. I mean, Mark worked them over, so be Episcopal. No, no, no. Better that they think you're a pagan than to think that you are a follower of Jesus when you don't act like Jesus. And I'm just telling you, guys, 
here's the problem again. Now, now move on. Right, let me get to it, though. The problem is when you go into that restaurant, you're, you're not, you don't think right. You, you, the gospel is not coming to life. You say, what do you mean? You go in there thinking wrongly that you are there to be served. That's what you think. But that's not why you're there. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says that we are what for Christ? We are ambassadors for Christ. So we go into the restaurant representing King Jesus. And we are there to serve that waiter, serve that waitress by the way we act, by the things we say, and even by what we leave on the table. We're not there to be served. In fact, we're nowhere on this planet to be served. We are to be the ones serving. Any, any situation, any place, every day, that's who we are. The Bible says we will not be rude. I pick up the pace. The Bible says that love does not seek its own. That means it's not an, on an ego trip. Me, myself, and my, that's all I, no. Love starts with others, not with itself. Love is not provoked. That means love does not have a short fuse. Love does not get easily angered. I hear all sorts of excuses why people lose their temper. One of my favorite is, well, I'm a redhead. What in the world has that got to do with anything? Or the other one, well, I'm Irish. Well, what's that guy? I, I'm Irish and got red hair. But I'll tell you something. If I lose my temper, it's because I'm in the flesh, not because I'm Irish, not because I'm a redhead. It's because I'm carnal. It's because I'm letting the old nature still rear its ugly head in my life. And I'm naturally wired pretty, uh, pretty tight. That's just who I am. And if I lose my temper, then I am not walking and living in the power of the Spirit, but I'm walking living in the power of the flesh. And the Bible says, when love has control of your life, you're not provoked. You keep no record of evils. Verse 6, you don't like sin, you hate sin. You do not rejoice in iniquity, but you rejoice in the truth. And verse 7, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Uh, verse 7 is what is known as a chiasm in the study of literature. You say, what does that mean? It means of the four ideas, the first and the fourth idea go together, and the second and the third idea go together. It's kind of like sandwiching something. So bears all things goes with endures all things. And believes all things goes with hopes all things. Love bears all things and endures all things, which means what? Uh, when the going gets tough, love keeps going. Love does not quit. Love does not stop. Love does not throw in the towel. Love keeps going. But love also hopes all things and endure and, and believes all things, which simply means what? Love has an optimistic perspective. Love gives others the benefit of that. Those of you that are married already know this. Those of you who someday will be married, which is most of you, will learn this. It is really a blessing in marriage for your mate to give you the benefit of the doubt. It's huge that your mate looks for the best, that, that she believes the best, he hopes the best. It also blesses you to know that your mate will bear and endure through the power of Jesus. It will bless you. And it will also enable you to get to the finish line together. So Paul says love is essential. Paul says love is expressive. Finally, Paul says, love is enduring. Verse 8, the first phrase, love never fails. Oh, where there are prophecies, they're going to stop. They'll, they'll fail. It just means they'll come to an end. Where there are tongues, they're going to cease. Where there is knowledge, in particular the gift of knowledge, it'll vanish away. Hey, right now, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, personally, I believe that is speaking to the coming again of Christ in terms of the consummation of the age. So when everything is consummated in Christ, then that which is in part will be done away with. You see, here we are. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, when I moved into maturity, I put away childish things. That Now, in this day and age, I've seen a mirror dimly. But then in the eschatological future, when I'm with Christ face to face now, yeah, I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So here's the sum of the matter. There abides faith, hope and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, why did he say that? I'll tell you why. Faith one day 
will give way to sight. And hope one day will give way to reality. But love, because it's the very nature and character of God. Think about this. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God is faith. It doesn't say that. It doesn't make sense. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God is hope. Now, God gives us hope, but God is not hope. But at least twice in 1 John chapter 4, the Bible says God is love. And because God is love, the gospel will only come to life when his love life is living it out in and through your love life. If you were to go back to chapter 13, verse 4 through verse 8, there's an interesting exercise that I want to put before you to do sometime alone today uh, they'll just kind of give you a reality check about where is your personal love life. And here's what I want you to do. Go back in where you see the word love in verses 4 through 8. Take the word out in its place. Put the name of Jesus. Read the verses. Ask the question. How well does his name fit? Answer, his name fits perfectly. Second part. Take out the word love. Put your name in there. Read the verses again. Ask the question, how well does my name fit? It used to be when I would teach from this text, I would stop right there. And I would say, you need to go back and say, Danny Aiken is long-suffering. Danny Aiken is kind. Danny Aiken does not envy, is not, uh, doesn't parade about, is not puffed up, does not act rudely. And I would always sense, you know, I can't measure up. I can try but I can't measure up. And even though I said this is what we strive for, I always felt, you know, yeah, but I just, I can't pull it off. And then one day in chapel, J.D. Greer, my good friend, uh, church, Summit Church over there, came over here and preached in chapel. He preached on 1 Corinthians 13. I thought I knew everything about 1 Corinthians 13. I've studied it for years in, in great detail. And so he's coming over and I'm like, well, that's fine. And he, he did a wonderful job. I remember absolutely nothing about his message, but one thing. He said what I just said. You know, if you put Jesus' name there, it fits really good. You put your name there and it doesn't fit so good. And then you're frustrated because you know this is what you're supposed to do. So how do you get out of that? And here's what he said. What you really need to do is go back and read verses 4 through 8 this way. Now listen to me. Not just Jesus is, not Danny Aiken is, but... Jesus in me is. And that's it. That's it. Jesus in me can be, I can be a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of Christian because it's Jesus in me living and loving in that way. So as we close, that's what I'm going to do. Verse 4, Jesus in me suffers long. And Jesus, by his grace in me, is kind. And Jesus, by his power in me, does not envy. And Jesus in me does not parade about, nor is he puffed up. Jesus in me does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, keeps no record of evil. No, Jesus in me does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And Jesus in me bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Verse 8, Jesus in me never fails. So my question, how does the gospel come to life? Jesus tells us, love. Jesus in me, love. By this shall all men know that you belong to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Every time I read this text, I am convicted. And every time I read this text, I see shortcomings in my own life. And yet, Lord, this is what a Christian ought to look like. This is a portrait of the gospel come to life. This is a, a vision of the kind of child of God, devoted follower of Jesus that the world must take notice of. Lord, I remember as a teenager in rebellion against you, not walking with you, 
I was brought back to you, not by any intellectual argument, not by any scholarly presentation, but a bunch of teenagers that I had been so unkind to in high school. Cursing them, making fun of them, pushing them around, being rude. At a Bible study party one Saturday night, they just loved me. Loved me unconditionally like you. I could not explain it. It just shattered my mind. But I knew what they had I desperately wanted. And you loved me back to yourself through them. The odds are most of us in this room will not bring someone to Christ through our great intellect, though we may have one. But we will bring them to Jesus by the way we love them. Help the gospel come to life in and through us as we love others. In the way you have loved us, we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.